0: Let start in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, uh, I this may not be a good thing for you all, but Yesterday, as I was flying back from Los Angeles and my flight was delayed, I was inspired to to write another class for today. And I'll tell you why. Because we talked about um, moral absolutes and the critique of moral relativism, and my normal was going to jump right into natural law. But I realized that over the course of this class, even though we sort of looked at what happened after Vatican II and the way theology is today, most of that is within the church. We didn't really look at culture, society as a whole. And there are a lot of things that I think have led to a a epistemological crisis, which we talked about, but also a deeper crisis of meaning. And in bioethics and in sexual ethics, we're going to talk a lot about those, but in a couple of specific areas. But I'm realizing that it might be a good idea to be able to make a few other critiques here before we go to natural law. Because as we've talked about, natural law is very difficult for people to understand and accept. And and I want to sort of lay the foundation of maybe why that might be. So today's class, or this first lesson, may be a bit all over the place. Um, and maybe y'all will be able to give me some ideas to make it better if I choose to keep it for next semester. So, does that sound good? We're going to have more philosophy here, or more thinking. Well, I know you'll love that. So, there there is the problem of relativism, but there is a deeper epistemological crisis, a crisis of meaning. And so we've looked at a few things. So we've looked, first of all, at Occam and the influence of nominalism, the denial of universals, analogical speech, and the origin of the moral law and God's will. And we've sort of seen, or we saw some of the effects of that. We're going to really see that when we get into freedom. And the last time, we talked a little bit about Kant's Copernican revolution and the epistemological crisis, where, of course, the the mind can only know phenomena. We can't know noumena. And then this, of course, leads to Nietzsche, proclaiming God is dead. And we have killed him the death of metaphysics, which also really lays the, the, the groundwork for the collapse of the traditional moral system of natural law and temp- contemporary universal ethics, uh, paving the way for the will to take over since the intellect had been crippled. And we, of course, know where that leads to. It leads to the Shoah. It leads to lots of chaos. It also then leads to emotivism and morality being based a lot on emotions and feelings, which we probably should spend more time looking at. But I want to look, offer a few more reflections of things that I think have influenced where we are today and this moral crisis that does lead to relativism. And that's kind of really what we're looking at. But more specifically, an inability to understand or to accept the natural law, and I guess also the the the, uh, the realistic approach to reality or to, to morality, this Christian realism that Thomas had, and that we as as Christians and Catholics try to offer. So what I'm looking at here are some intermediary issues. We're not necessarily looking at specific periods of time, but different critical issues that I think influence where we are today, Um, because if we reject metaphysics, if we have these certain other things that culturally or epistemologically impact our understanding of truth and reality, it is going to lead to the natural, the denial of the natural law, the denial of human nature, and sort of the chaos we have today. So uh, I'm gonna, a lot of this comes from stuff that I've read over the years uh, in Ratzinger and Benedict, which probably won't be a, a surprise. I have a number of quotes from him here. I may not give them all to you, but you can go read them to see how I, I back things up. So the, the most prominent one that I want to propose, and this is something we're going to talk a lot about in bioethics, is scientism and what we'll call the... the the technological or the technocratic paradigm. Now, again, I am not a Luddite. I like science. I like air conditioning. Even though maybe the environment doesn't like it. I like my car. I like my cell phone. I like all these things. And engineering and these things have really helped us advance as a culture uh, much more than we would have without it. But along with it comes certain side effects. I mean, technology is not necessarily neutral, but here we're not looking at technology itself, but a mindset that it tends to create where the world is reduced to mere facts, what is empirically or mathematically verifiable. This is what, for this technocratic paradigm, the scientistic approach, this is objective truth and this is something benedict says the, the the natural law for many today is almost incomprehensible due to a concept of nature that is no longer metaphysical but only empirical when we look we look at nature we look at the body we look at creation it's only what we can measure only what we can quantify only what appears to us from our senses the fact that nature being itself is no longer a transparent moral message creates a sense of disorientation that renders the choices of daily life precarious and uncertain. So there's a lot of confusion about who we are and how we should act. But what Ratzinger is going to say is that this scientific approach, which has its roots in you know, the scientific revolution, but also in the Enlightenment, severely limits the scope of reason. If you're a scientist, you believe the reason can have some access to the truth. You'll fa- I found on a college campus that if we were going to see college professors that believed and that would come to mass and often convert, what, what area do you think most of them were in? Close. It's something I think you know about. What's your major in, brother? It's in engineering. They're engineers. It was not the English majors or the history majors. It was interesting because there's this logical, the world has to make sense or else engineering is pointless, completely pointless. And so, but the problem is, is to reduce all truth just to engineering or just to science or just to math. It severely limits the scope of reason. And particularly where all of a sudden we we can't have access to these deeper moral truths. And so what happens is religion and ethics, the, the spiritual, are relegated to the subjective. What's objective is science, is math, is engineering. And moral truths or moral claims are nothing more than value claims. They are your subjective belief or experience. Why? Why is that? Why, according to the, 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 the scientific technocratic paradigm, morality is going to always be subjective? It's exactly. Yeah, you can't measure it, and and and, be, and partially because reason only can work within these certain limits, so it's dismissed. Uh, the worst, it's seen as irrational or as a myth. But the the crazy thing is, is Christianity claim originally came and said, no, no, no. the logos was born into history. All these myths of these gods and creative forces and all this kind of stuff, that's a bunch of baloney. Christianity is real. God became man. And, And so the way we can sort of phrase it is science is true or false. That's objective. And religion is good or bad a value statement, completely subjective. So any sense of the transcendent or mystery is gone. And truth, even moral truth, because that's, that's the thing is is we kind of discussed this in bioethics, that, that this is going to create a certain ethic, this technological paradigm. Where truth then, even moral truth, eventually becomes replaced with what is technically possible, technique what is practical or useful. Ratzinger said, we do not know what is true, but we do know what we should do, what we should do practically, nor do we know who we are. And so, so through all of this, because we've limited the scope of reason, moral truths ha- have lost their evidential character. They're not evidential anymore in a society conditioned by technology. But what is the problem here when it comes to a worldview that tends to be dominated by technique and technology? What does this devolve or evolve into generally? If if there's no perceiving of mystery, science used to be, well, I, I want to study the world to, to perceive the mystery and the and the different Ways that God is working through creation. Things just become resources. I all the hydro. Is they don't really have purposes or natures on their own. It's more about what role they can play in society. Ab- ab- absolutely, yes. The, 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 there's no, there's no. We're going to say there's no telos, but there's no nature, there's no meaning, and so we have to sort of impose meaning, and they become useful for us. Yeah. It's kind of like some scary implications there. You can go to a place like MIT mm-hmm. and a lot of students, they see themselves almost like a like cogs or a machine or like numbers. You're know, here to get a degree, make money. And then the teachers kind of treat them like numbers. And the buildings are very uh, they're like they're not beautiful. Though, they're just uh, very plain. Functional. Functional. Almost like I'd say like Something of like a communist, like no, it's going to impact our view of the human person, impact our view of architecture and culture. Trey, did you have an opinion? I was going to say, basically, you said it's just imposing ourselves on the world, imposing meaning. Imposing, yeah, imposing, meaning, but doing what? There, there's no sense of, if there's no sense of mystery, then science is not there to understand, but to kind of advance. Advance to control to exert power. This is the the thing, that this technocratic paradigm devolves into an expression of power. Power over nature. So it's not just to give meaning, but it's to manipulate. Because we're not going to respect the nature that is in present in this thing, because there, there is no nature. There's no metaphysics. There's no human nature. There's no nothing. So only what retains power remains. And then it creates, this is the irony, it creates its own ethic, technocratic imperative. If it can be done, it should be done. If I have the power to clone a human being, I should clone a human being. If I have the power to make a nuclear weapon, then because I have that power, and this is all part of progress, I should be able to do it. So this is seeing the world as hyper-rational, devoid of any metaphysics, devoid of any concept of nature, truth, ends, telos, even though there's another thing that really impacts it. What is the opposite end of the spectrum? So we're going to move it. What is the opposite end of the spectrum of this whole technocratic paradigm, where the world becomes imminently understandable, controllable? True, uh, I'm gonna, uh, it's tied to it. I'm going to argue something else, though. I was going to say a kind of absurdism. Yes, postmodernism, which we're going to really get into. Yeah. So here, the, the, the world is hyper-rational, hyper-understandable. The opposite is postmodernism, which we're not going to get into all the ins and outs of that, because it is. The world is ultimately irrational. Absurdism. There, there's no real truth. Everything is a construct. Um, language doesn't really describe reality. Um, you can get into Foucault, Derrida, all that stuff that generally doesn't make a lot of sense to me. There's not a lot of solid realities. You're not naming things. You're creating your own meaning, but even then, your own meaning is sort of reduced to absurdity. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about a fair bit Next semester is liquid modernity, is the description of postmodernism, where there, there are no solids, that, that, that these structures that were concrete no longer exist, and everything flows into each other for a number of different reasons. One of them is, I have always thought interesting, is because of technology, our ability to travel long distances quickly. So I went from Los Angeles to, La- to New Orleans, yesterday in three hours, Uh, that's traveling thousands of miles. Imagine a hundred years ago, 500 years ago, no, you couldn't do it because if you did, it would be a treacherous journey and it would take weeks, if not longer than that, to be able to make the journey. And so what happens is as New Orleans then becomes a fixed place, Los Angeles becomes a fixed place. Our concept of space and time changes. But now that I can get in a plane and go there for three hours, space and time collapse on each other, or at least our perception of it does. And so why should I be restrained by space and time? Why should I? I could travel. I could do what I want. And all of this is it's partially as a result of technology. But we're going to talk more about that uh, a little bit later on. So if there's no real meaning, if everything's sort of absurd, then you're Each individual creates their own construct of language and meaning, freedom is going to end up becoming paramount. And it's a freedom that is totally unhinged from the truth. Because there is no truth. But we're going to look at that a little bit later on. Another thing that that A couple places Ratzinger notices that I think is a big, big impact, and I remember discussing it with a philosophy professor, and he was the one, a friend of mine who's atheist over at the university, um, is the influence of evolution and the theory of evolution. So if indeed you take an atheistic perspective of evolution, that we are all random products of natural selection then there can be no telosis in nature. So I remember, we were having this discussion early on when the whole gay marriage thing was going on, and my argument was, we were having a discussion, was about, you know, the purpose, the natural law. He goes, no, that doesn't exist. Not only does metaphysics not exist, but the eye isn't ordered towards sight. The eye evolves... To be able to see shades of green and to perceive reality so that we could survive and this happened over random years over natural selection and random mutations your, your penis is not somehow mystically ordered towards a vagina well it's just procreation it's the propagation of the species it could have evolved a different way but this is the way it evolved there's no meaning outside of that and, and whether we like it or not This influences people's thinking. This is part of that whole social myth. I mean, they understand it. It influences the way they think. And so if you're going to really go to the, so there's no telos in nature. There's no ends. There's no meaning. It's all random products of biology. then what is morality meant for? Well, morality itself evolved. It's part of evolutionary psychology. We need to be nice to each other and kind to each other and not steal so we trust each other. We build strong social bonds because we know that humans needed social bonds to be able to band together to share resources and to protect themselves from the saber-toothed tigers that were trying to eat them. Mm -hmm. Now, if you really push it to an extreme, and and I'm not saying that... I'm sure there are individuals who've come up with this idea that what is most fitting to promote the species becomes acceptable. Here here you have, what what role do the weak play in this? Even though I'm, certainly, weakness in a certain sense, you have weak individuals, and a lot of times in certain species they're, they're killed or they're destroyed, but humans begin to care for our weak, and thus building strong social bonds an uh, increased dignity of the understanding of all humans. But but what role does the weak have to play? And this idea of, of eugenics that becomes prevalent, even in the beginning here of the 21st century, with pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and a lot of these bioethical issues, how much is sort of a, like a, a social Darwinism or a, a sort of a, an evolutionary concept implied in that it would be something interesting to study but the big thing the big thing is this and we talked a little bit about it and we are going to talk a lot about it next year is the subjective shift in culture where there is a movement away from objective reality to one's subjective experience summed up in the phrase expressive individualism where the individual takes precedence over society of the common good, my individual rights. And again, the dignity the, 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 the digna- of the human person, the personalistic norm, human rights, these things are all really good. But they have to be seen in balanced with uh, the value of a culture. So, so what happens is, as we move along here, personal authenticity becomes the most important. So Ratzinger says that. That I have my right to express myself, to be who I am. I'm not going to let anything exterior or even my own body restrict who I believe I am. And this expresses, impacts the conscience, the common good. Big influence on what we call the triumph of the therapeutic. And I believe a connection to emotivism where... Ultimately, morality is connected to your own emotions and your feelings which you think is right. You can connect this back to Montaigne and Le Sentiment, the the feelings, my feelings, is what's the most important. I'm going back into those types of thinkers, but I have to give you some more resources on that. And where, where does this find, you know... Where, do, where does this all find its, its, its apotheosis? Where does it, it all culminate in? In a certain sense, the technological imperative, liquid modernity, expressive individual. What does it all end up? It ends up in a freaking man winning the NCA championship in swimming. It does. The women swim. swimming. Yeah. Huh? No, he won. Wa- he 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 got first in the championship last week. A man, <laughs> Leah Thomas. And again, I'm not trying to make a critique. Whatever he's going through, he's going through. But you've seen the picture. Have you seen the picture of him standing next to those? Oh, you know. And, and so, but here, I think I am this therefore I am this, you will all bow to what I believe it to be, and then the culture and society has to buy into it too. So it's like we're, we're living in this delusion. We're not, we're not living in reality. We're not living in reality. Um, I don't want to get into commentary on that. We're going to have plenty of time to comment on it next semester, but we're here. My subjective experience of gender, which is valid, I can have a subjective experience of, of who I am and what I am in my body, but it, it doesn't trump the fact that you have a biological sex. Certainly, certain there can be different expressions of my gender in different cultures and different times, and I'm not denying that. And everybody has to be macho. But your body either produces gametes that are male or gametes that are female. There's no way... His body produces oocytes. They don't. You can't do it. But he's got his own experience of it. How do we handle that pastorally? We'll talk about that. But we're not living in reality. It's all liquid. Whatever you want. I'll say the that. You see in the news, kind of secular culture, and people ask people on the streets, well, what's the definition of a woman? I'd be like, oh, yeah. it depends on you. like, your experience, and then that person. Definition of woman um, as like we have a nature which um, uh, can not just state like you know and to so talk about like in terms of Taylor's spooker, like no that's that's just that's not true yeah you know, it depends on you and you know, your kind of like, suggest, like, it's, experience yes yeah, com- it, complete different. denial of reality complete ability to define anything right. we're going to get a lot more into that y'all y'all really should read if you haven't read it yet Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self this summer so that you don't have to read it all next semester it is, how many of y'all have read it? It's fantastic, huh? Zeldin's read it. It's on our book list? It's gonna be on your book list for next semester, but you, 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 but you should just read it in general. Because if any of you are gonna be doing any work with the young people this summer, you should read this book. Anyhow, overall though, overall, all of this, and I'm sure there are other factors that maybe we could consider, overall it leads to a distrust of reason. Uh, And There are a lot of other things, a complete distrust of prison. And I have a couple of really great quotes here from, um, from Ratzinger, but basically, if everything is absurd, if technology gives meaning, if my subjective experience is not the same as your subjective experience, and everything just becomes relative, well, why do we even bother reading? I mean, reasoning. Um, Here, I'll give you this quote. Once again, we are confronted with the fundamental antithesis between materialism and faith. Materialism, we'll call it sort of the scientific rationalism. The creed of materialism is that the irrational stands at the beginning and that only the laws of chance have constructed the rational out of the irrational. So again, you could even say, because... There are all these rules in, in the world and chemical rules and stuff. It's all just a random product of evolution somehow. Thus, reason is a byproduct of the irrational. It is a mere assemblage in its laws without any ethical or aesthetic content. This makes man in turn the assembler of the world, which he designs according to the criteria of his goals. But the real primal force always remains the irrational. So, yeah, everything's crazy, there's chaos, it's irrational. We need to impose order on it. We need to, to, to subject nature to our meaning, to our world, so that it can produce for us. For faith it is exactly the opposite. The spirit is the creative origin of all things, and therefore they all bear reason in themselves. This reason does not come from them, but infinitely transcends them, yet it forms the law of their being. The creative reason, not the creative will, that creates the objective reasonableness of things, their hidden mathematics, so their inner order, is at the same time moral reason. And it is love. We'll see what he means by that later. Man exists in order to recognize the traces of this reason and so to develop things in keeping with their essence. His rule is a service and his freedom is a bond, namely to the inner truth of things and the openness for the love that makes him like God. Yeah, so here we are exerting our our dominion over creation. But we can also see changes on a more societal level. And I'll I'll go over these a little more quickly till we get to what the Catholic resolution is. First is the rise of pluralistic societies and radical secularism, where religion or religious-based reason seems to be relegated to the subjective. It ought not have a voice even discounted. And so what is left to make ethical and moral decisions is democracy, a majority decision, which, of course, as we know, pretty easy to be manipulated. And then also leads to just a general (laughs) legal positivism. Whatever the law says, we create rules. There is no natural law that our legislators should be perceiving and thus creating laws that participate and and then then are involved in that. Thus also tolerance becomes a virtue, but we see how tolerant, intolerant tolerance can be. Um, With that, on a religious sphere, religious syncretism, when basically all religions are equal, all different expressions of the same thing, and then here comes Christianity with a, cl- a truth claim that Christ is the true Messiah, and that all things point to him. Well, this is an, an tolerant, syncretistic society. This cannot be accepted. The influence of Marxism, which we could spend a lot of time on, or politics replaces religion. Progress becomes the most important in its influence in the 60s and the 70s campus revolution, sexual revolution, that we are going to, to move culture forward by revolution, by collapsing opposites in this sort of Hegelian dialectic, but of course without God it ends up with a lot of dead bodies. Connected to that, the social justice movement, which And Ratzinger talks about this. He says, even though it's good that we have this hope that we're going to have a better society, and, and we, kind of, we kind of saw that, it runs the risk of saying, we care about this issue. We care about these people. And you go protest. But do you actually care for the person in front of you? Is there any real change that's done? No. It just becomes sort of, it can become a type of virtue signaling, the lack of concrete effectiveness often connected to Marxist ideologies. So you have, you have all these things change in society. that all create this mess that we have in now where denial of the metaphysic, metaphysical, no natural law, subjective trumps the objective, reason can't be trusted. And so then what, then here's the Catholic position where we believe in the reasonableness of creation. We believe in God. We believe in the natural law. And as I was trying to say last time, in a, in a culture that has a significant crisis of meaning for these and other reasons, what is, our, what is the message that we have, at least from the moral sense here, and how do we communicate it? And this is going to be part of the creative spiritual guidance that y'all we're going to have to do and you're going to, have to do particularly over the course of your priesthood anchored in a belief that creation comes to the creator there's an order to it it's reasonable it's not absurd and that just as if i'm hungry my desire for food can be satiated by eating i have a desire for knowledge a desire for truth and that god didn't play this trick on us that there is truth out there it may be some things may be more difficult to find than others but we can find the truth, and in fact, creation itself is a sacrament. So this is our old theology of the body stuff, where it reveals God, it reveals gift, it reveals truth. And, and we can perceive moral truths, we can believe scientific truths, we can perceive religious truths, and they can all work together. This is something that Barron always is talking about as the fundamental issue. Because this idea that faith and reason do not work together, or science is inimical to faith, is all rooted in all the stuff that we've talked about. But, but from the Catholic position, which is not a fundamentalist position, both can work together. So we propose, instead of an absurdist, a reductionistic, or what we'll call next semester a nihilistic worldview, we propose a sacramental worldview, where creation reveals deeper truths. And that our reason, particularly our practical reason, our moral reasoning that helps us to know practically what we ought to do, not speculative reasoning, not scientific reasoning, because it it penetrates reality more deeply. What Ratzinger has in this quote, the experiential reason, that, that comes from our own experience, empiricism. But our moral reason can go beyond our experience to see what we ought to do, what's the meaning of the world. So we we didn't invent morality, we found it, we discovered it. We can look at nature and see how it reveals itself to us. Therefore we can perceive a natural moral law. Most people who are not academics in Ivy League schools or in English departments can generally perceive these things. Because the basic essential elements, these basic first principles, reveal themselves, and it should be pretty easy to figure out, um, to be able to perceive. And and this is one of the things that you know it, it has this evidential character. Uh, I think I posted an article, or I'm going to post an article, an essay by Ratzinger that talks about this. But this is C.S. Lewis's *The Abolition of Man*. Lewis here, what, 80 years ago, writing, we got a problem here when we doubt the fact that we can perceive and know not just the natural law, but the first principles of the natural law: do good and avoid evil, human dignity, principle of non-contradiction. If all of a sudden the world is absurd and you can't know these things, you're not going to be able to know who the human person is. You're not going to know ethics. It all falls apart. So believing in the natural law, believing the reasonableness of creation, the power of reason to be able to perceive these moral truths can help us dialogue with others, religion and science. But what Ratzinger proposes, though, is how do we find a synthesis? Because, and this is what I guess I was trying to talk about last time, you could go and talk about all this kind of stuff to a person who doesn't believe it, they're not going to listen to you. You could try to propose the natural moral law, and the reality is, most people are going to find it very difficult to accept. Very difficult to accept. And this is something that he's, he he says in what address? What? No, it was in 2000. It was I think it was addressed to remedy to, to the the Community liberation in 2002. When we talked about truth and beauty. He says, all too often arguments fall in deaf ears because in our world, too many contradictory arguments compete with one another. Because everybody has their own subjective argument that they think is true. So much that we are spontaneously reminded of the medieval theologian's description of reason. That it has a wax nose. In other words, it can be pointed in any direction. If one is clever enough, everything makes sense is so convincing, whom can we trust? Yeah, <laughs> that it does. I, 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 think it's true. Like, how do you, how do you do it? Because they may say this all sounds good, but that's your truth. How do I, I've heard this other argument. That's say that they're not even, not even doing it. Not even, not even denying that you're saying is true, but they realize I'm just so confused. There's so many competing arguments out there. And this is before the rise of social media and everybody becoming an expert on politics and philosophy and meteorology and social policy. Everybody has a podcast. Yeah. How do you promote something? And and, and one of the things that, that Ratzinger offers is this synthesis that Christianity offers with the logos, this idea that the logos, the word, helps to make creation make sense. He also offers that love helps to produce the synthesis for early Christianity. While there were all these different mythological claims and Christianity was trying to gain a foothold in the Roman Empire and Greek thinking, what the difference was was the love for the poor and love for the neighbor. And so what it does is it takes reason, but it also takes will and feelings and emotions and creates this sort of synthesis of the human person. So you have truth which is moral truth, but in early Christianity, it's connected to goodness, the witness of the saints and the love for the poor, but for Ratzinger, the big one is beauty. And so in a certain sense, if all we do, and this is where I think the synthesis comes into, that you take all, all of these transcendentals, I know that unity is a transcendental too, I'm not going to get into all this fighting over that, here, the unity of all three of them, whatever, but Truth, beauty, and goodness. You make your truth claims, but without the goodness that Christianity offers in loving your neighbor and care for the poor that that, that embodies these truths, I I think I've told you before, holiness is the most convincing thing. I see holy people, and I see these holy people believe this. Therefore, it's very convincing. But beauty has a power... even beauty to reveal truth, even beauty and goodness. In a world where rational argumentation struggles to convince, there's a knowledge of the heart that leads to truth. Ratzinger says, the encounter with the beautiful can become the wound of the arrow that strikes the heart and in this way opens our eyes so that later, from this experience, we take the criteria for judgment and correctly evaluate the arguments. You go from beauty to truth or goodness to truth. So I, 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 I've told you all the, the stories of uh, maybe I, I can't remember because I got in really late and also have bad memory with these things. And I talked to so many different groups. Did we talk about St. Peter's Basilica? Did I talk to you all some of that? Yeah. You, know, you bring people into St. Peter's. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I saw conversions happen. You've never seen you you can think you know what it looks like in a, in a book or when you go to the Sistine Chapel. You think you know what it looks like, but not until you experience it. But but there's so many beautiful things we need to be sort of paying attention to it. But you know, but so but often we don't. We're we're so distracted. We're caught up in our own lives. I remember When I was going, I was the chaplain over at UL for 11 years, but when I was a student there, I remember I'd walk back and forth to class, and I'm a a, a dumb 18-year-old kid, and I paid attention to beauty. I wanted to covet the beauty. And they were often not dressed appropriately in the early 90s. But I paid attention to all the girls. Going back, the whole main street of St. Mary's is lined with these beautiful live oaks, And and, and never in 11 years did I walk out and ever take those for granted when I was a little bit older. It was so magnificent, but I never paid attention to it because we're just caught up in doing whatever we do. And of course, especially the beauty of Christ. Now, he he talks about this when it comes to icons and things like that. I don't fully understand what he means by being struck by the beauty of Christ. I guess I know what he's trying to say. the person of Christ, the way he encapsulates everything, but there, I think he's talking about the encounter in prayer, the encounter in the sacraments with Jesus, that that draws us in a way that goes beyond the intellect to this deeper contemplation. And so I think we could say though, you know all these things, how do we produce the synthesis? How do we dialogue? And and I I put that quote there from Fetus at Ratio going back to to Thomas. I went to the Dominican University of the Angelicum. I love Thomas. I'm not a straitjacket Thomas, as I said, but I went back and read over Fetus at Ratio. And, And looking at what John Paul II said there and the importance of Thomas in Catholic thought, he doesn't, at least I say, we need to go back and look at a lot of what he says, But it is his pursuit and love for the truth wherever he found it was the most important and his method for doing so. The disputatio, the willingness to listen to other people's opinion, to dialogue, not to just shout back and forth to each other in a non judgmental way, but to present a very realistic philosophy. I know we kind of ended on that last, last time, that what we propose is a sacramental worldview where reality reveals truths, reveals God, but we have a profoundly realistic worldview, and most of you in your parish are not going to be dealing with, you know, these Ivy League intellectuals. You're going to be dealing with the average person who thinks a tree is a tree, thinks a man is a man, and understands these things. It's not not very complicated. Um, We need a dialogue with others. But it is an approach that God is not deceiving us, he's not a trickster, and that reality is what it is, and it reveals itself to us. However, though, as a caveat, and I put this quote at the very bottom here, we we can't propose a. A mere rationalism and I think that's the problem sometimes if we don't have a synthesis particularly in a very narrow vision of Thomism where I'm going to explain everything rationally but Thomas wouldn't have done that he would he brings in different different sources and as Catholics we need to do the same thing But within the truth of the church, it always remains the same, but at different periods, we are going to highlight different truths differently. Again, that we could pick the fight right here of what does no salvation outside the church mean? Well, what does religious freedom mean? Well, the church, you know, modernism condemned, you know, these things. And Pashindi, these things were all condemned, but now we believe in religious freedom. Well, we're looking at things from a different perspective with an advance of knowledge. That we understand the human person better. We've come throughout history to understand. The truth is still there. We can see it from a different perspective. I know that for a lot of people, that sounds like relativism, but it's the way that as we evolve, we can't just keep rearranging things. We've got to move forward. We have to have progress. And particularly, if we are going to win over those other people who deny the use of reason, whether we'll do it in our lifetime, I'm not too convinced. I don't know how that's going to happen, but we we have the tools to do so, and I think it's going to be using the synthesis of beauty, truth, and goodness to help people come to see these deeper truths that are more reasonable than natural law. Any questions? Did that make sense? I mean, I'm sure if you have any other ideas that, that do influence this, please let me know. There's just so much. But I don't think we can just jump into the natural law to realize these different issues are why people have a hard time receiving the truth. That, that, That should be pretty simple for us to understand. So let's take a 10 minute break and we will come back.